Today I'm living life on the edge, both figuratively and metaphorically. I'm sitting in my lounge, my two cats are fast asleep, and my housemate's cat has decided to play, you know that Tony Hawk skater game where you skate around and you have to do the best tricks in the skate park, and you have to make the skate park all blue or all red, so you can steal the ramp or the rail from your opponent. Anyway, my housemate's cat is trying to play this game with my computer seat and I'm in genuine fear of my butt being attacked every time I try and sit down. So yes, I am living on the edge of my seat as I record this podcast for you. I hope you're thankful. They say signs of a personality disorder start showing, I believe, around early adolescence. So I've gone back to childhood to find where my traits first started appearing. Remember, these are my own reflections, and I remind you that others may have a similar experience or a totally different experience. I also won't be sharing all of my experiences, as there are a lot. Humans are very complex and this is a beautiful thing. There are still a lot of things I'm learning about myself, and that brings me to my next point, is if you do know somebody who has a diagnosis of any sort, even if it's not a personality disorder, remember that that doesn't encompass all of that person. It's just an aspect of who they are, and it's not a user manual for that person. Also, before we get into the nitty-gritty of this episode, I just need to clarify a couple of things that I missed on episode one. Uh, One thing is I get a little bit tangled up with numbers sometimes, so I told you guys that there are 264 different combinations that somebody can present with BPD. It's actually 256. Sorry about that. And the second thing is uh, you only need seven of the nine described pathological traits to meet the current criteria, which is the DSM-5. So you don't need all of them, seven out of nine. So still pretty high threshold. So some of the experiences that you might hear today um, might seem a little bit personal, but I'm sharing them in the name of graspability. I'm trying to give you some human examples behind the clinical terms you might hear. So without further ado, let's get into it. Let's have a look first at the identity and self-direction sections first. So with identity, I floated through my childhood I remember daydreaming through most of this time. I was very much not in the present moment most of the time. Of course, um, while I was growing up, I didn't know I was doing this, but it was clearly one of my go-to coping tools and is still one of the tricky habits to shake um, now for me. 
I think because of this coping mechanism, it was hard for me to be present and therefore explore interests. Um, perhaps I was too busy just trying to cope with the world around me and anything above that was just beyond my capacity. Like I mentioned in the last episode, I think if your self-identity is a bit of a mystery, then your self-direction will be the same. So my direction was heavily associated with who was around me. Their goals then became my goals. Um, There's a joke you might hear in a borderline social circle, which is someone would say, stop stealing my life. And the other person would respond, sorry, it's my BPD. I'm nobody without you. It sounds a bit crude, but if you've gone through a bit of recovery or you understand a bit about your personality disorder, uh, you'll generally be able to laugh. It's more a bit of dark humor to help you get through. If we look at empathy, in some aspects I was too empathetic. I didn't really know how to control that part of me. Uh, Not very surprising because emotions are kind of and unknown so you're really just running off what you're feeling even if you don't understand what you're feeling. In saying that I was also never very good at properly seeing another person's point of view or understanding the logic behind their emotions. In regards to intimacy I started showing signs of dysfunctional relationships around the age of eight or nine And unfortunately, this was the beginning of a pattern that would be consistent for the rest of my life until therapy, which was um, 27. So it's a long time. I think this is one of those common patterns, behavioral patterns that other people would be able to observe. Um, Even after a while, you yourself can observe this pattern that you're stuck in, but you don't have the skills to change your behavior. You don't have the skills to identify a healthy relationship or maintain a healthy relationship. And unfortunately, this is the reality of people with borderline personality. There's a strange experience when you're in a relationship and you have all of these feelings and feelings create turmoil and confusion, which creates more feelings and more turmoil and more confusion. Personally, for me, the way that I tried to deal with this was impulsivity um, and also a lot of anger. So I had a lot of rage in me and it came out pretty much any opportunity. Unfortunately, then you can grasp that the other person is hurting in the relationship And you also feel that pain and it hurts you. But you can't see any other way out. So for me, I would say my relationship with empathy was very sporadic, very illogical, um, and not really based on my own values or ability to understand other people necessarily. So let's have a little looky now at the pathological traits of BPD. Now, if you remember from our last episode, 
uh, borderline has a section of pathological traits and they are sectioned into three umbrellas. So the first one is negative affectivity. That is hard to say. And I loosely translate that to very not good feelings. Remember, I'm not a professional, but I thought I'd offer something a bit more graspable for your brain. If your brain had hands, I know which one it would choose. But I digress. If you want to hear the specific breakdowns of these umbrellas, you can go back to episode one and look at the second half, which is where you'll find the clinical criteria. Here I'll use less clinical definitions and more loose translations. So under the umbrella of very not good feelings, we have four items, including mood instability and emotions that are out of proportion to events, anxiousness, separation insecurity and depressivity. So I would argue that I came out of the womb with negative affectivity. I had it ready to go. Like all I did for nine months in there was research how to be the most reactive baby I could be. I joke, but being born with a sensitive temperament is actually a predisposition to developing a personality disorder. As a child, I was always throwing tantrums, screaming, and causing havoc for my four brothers. As I got older, I found it very difficult to grasp the full grief that would strike me every time I left my dad. I felt in my core that it was going to be the last time I would ever see him. And when I saw him again, I was so happy that I couldn't control my tears. My poor mum would try to go out for a dinner with her friends or have a study session. I would immediately fall ill with a headache and beg her not to go. I remember she was watching us at sports and when she went to watch my brothers, I broke down and ran off the field after her. My anxiety was on high alert by the time I was 12. I was kind of like those goats that fall over when they get a fright. I made my mum a cup of tea. And when I came back outside, she had moved to a different spot. I got such a fright that I dropped the cup of tea. So it's fair to say I was a bit jumpy. Disinhibition is the second umbrella. And my way of translating disinhibition is the unsafe version of spontaneity and without the ability to choose when that spontaneity occurs. Here we have risk-taking without regard for safety and impulsivity without considering the outcomes. I would say I experienced disinhibition as a child minimally. It became more prominent around 12 or 13. Before that, I was able to understand that climbing on the roof and jumping onto the trampoline below was safe, only up to a certain height. I understood fear and even pushed the limits to find where a safety boundary would be. During the early years of high school, I would find myself in all sorts of situations where the assessment of risk was clearly not even real to me. My mum would be looking for me and not only did I not consider the risks of my actions, but I also could not even comprehend or acknowledge that this was a reality. As I got older, I would start acting impulsive as a response to feelings of turmoil. Around 15, I had developed a plethora of unhealthy coping mechanisms 
which were all driven by an impulse to respond to stimuli. It's important for you to understand that a person acting on this stimuli in the concept of borderline personality disorder most probably does not have any more understanding about their feelings other than there is a feeling and they are trying to respond, most likely with an unhealthy coping mechanism. I can't speak for everybody, of course, but I can speak with certainty that this was me. I think disinhibition is the most dangerous part of BPD, and I'm very thankful that I made it through this area fairly unscathed. Many relationships were either strengthened due to having similar challenges or personality traits, or unfortunately damaged and often severed during this time. So just because I made it through unscathed doesn't mean everyone around me did. The last umbrella term is antagonism, loosely translated as not being able to deal with the pain, numbness, or confusion you feel constantly. Under the umbrella of antagonism, we only see hostility as a pathological trait listed for BPD. And it comes in the beautiful form of anger and rage. Anger tends to be a baseline, um, at least for me it was. I feel I'm pretty safe in saying that it is for a lot of people with BPD. For me, this trait was very prominent and consistent from the age of at least 10 onwards. I remember walking home from school one day and my routine was to smash a stick against people's fences and hedges. I didn't think about it. I wasn't even really aware I was doing it until a family friend saw me and asked if I was okay. I remember being very taken aback and surprised that he was there. I was very unaware of my surroundings and I think this is one of the first experiences in my life where I started feeling like maybe I was different to other people around me. I also remember slamming my school bag down in the corridor and I looked up one day to see my teacher's expression. Again, this caught me by surprise as I was unaware of my actions or emotions. I was just doing. All of these traits grew stronger as I got older. Impulsivity got worse, more unhealthy coping mechanisms developed and took over my life. More relationships were pursued and subsequently destroyed. And with that, my identity and self-direction became more and more fragmented. Eventually, I ended up in hospital and sadly, I got released. Um, I was in a pretty controlled environment and I was on medication. So as they assessed me for borderline personality, uh, they didn't really see any of the reactive traits, I suppose. I don't even know what they were looking for at the time. Uh, they just put it down to me needing a break and that I was a bit stressed with my everyday life. So after a bit more destruction, I came over to Australia as a last-ditch option to enter a treatment program. Thankfully, my mum fought for me through all these years, and she was the one who saved my life. It sounds really dramatic, but believe me, I'm serious. Personality disorders are severe and complex. They cause so much destruction in society, and unfortunately, if you mix the right personality disorder with the right temperament and underlying personality, the results can be dire for society. 
This is a podcast to raise awareness and help you understand personality disorders and specifically BPD. But I make no jokes when I say to you that if somebody's actions are putting you in danger, understanding alone will not keep you safe. Understanding will inform you of what might be happening for that person. Understanding will help you see that if we are not well, we simply may be unable or unwilling to grasp the consequences of our actions, and therefore reasoning with that person may not be an option for you. So please remember that you can be compassionate, but you can also keep yourself safe at the same time. Before therapy, I was unable to do much consistently in my life. Uh, I think the longest job I was able to hold down was the one just before I ended up in hospital, which was just over a year. And I did love that job, so I'm sad that I lost it. But I'm also really happy because I've ended up in therapy and my life is so much better now. It's amazing. I actually love my life and I've got so much motivation to keep improving my skills. I'm just at the beginning, even though I graduated almost a year ago, I have a lot of work to do. I still have a lot of symptoms to learn about and then to figure out which skills work best to combat those symptoms. So it is a bit of a marathon effort recovering from a personality disorder. I went through a treatment program called DBT or Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. It's a very good treatment. These really are amazing life skills and that's what we're going to be talking about next week. What is DBT? So just to recap what we learned about today, we really just went through what we learned about in the first episode. We took all of the clinical definitions and the criteria that clinicians might look at and we put a few human aspects to it just to bulk it out with a bit of human substance. I hope that it has increased your understanding of what a personality disorder could look like and specifically what borderline personality could look like. I hope it's increased your understanding in what the person is feeling and what the driving forces are behind their behaviors. And just to really drive this message home, please don't confuse compassion with putting yourself in danger. If you're in a relationship with somebody who has a personality disorder or you suspect they do, or even if their actions are making you feel unsafe, you need to put yourself first. You, no matter what this person tries to tell you, need to keep yourself safe. You can be compassionate from a distance. It's okay. As always, thank you so much for coming and listening to my podcast. I have received so many messages from you guys and um, a lot of them have brought me to tears. It's so special knowing that you guys care and are interested in this topic and in me as a person. Um, so thank you again. And I will see you next week.